you've tuned into all things fine and gentry with the connoisseur french thompson where consistently we bring you ideas concepts and exposure to thoughtful content lifestyle enhancements and opportunities to improve yourself and those around you thank you for tuning in and taking a listen to this week's episode Welcome, welcome, welcome back to another episode of All Things Fine and Gentry. This is the Connoisseur French Thompson, and thank you for tuning in today. If this is your first time, welcome. We're glad that you've stumbled upon this one way or the other or another, and that uh, you don't just stick around for this episode, but you decide to like, subscribe, become a part of this listening audience. We would love to have you as a part of the uh, All Things Fine and Gentry world. And to the returning uh, listeners, which I have affectionately started to call this year the connoisseurs, uh, welcome back. Good to hear and see from you all um, this uh, th- this week, and we hope that you will um, enjoy this episode. So um, as we dig into this episode, you all know I like to give a little uh, opening as far as uh, the introducing the guests that I have on. And so as I was telling him as we were prepping for this episode, there are, there are very few people in which um, <clears throat> when I talk about like all things fine and gentry and a life well lived and uh, being exposed to the finer things in life, there are very few people that I would say that got that early on that the first time I met them, I'm like, oh, yeah, this dude got it already. Right. And so as um, as I got to know him and, you know, kind of watched his um, uh, maturation in the world of, of uh, being a connoisseur, um, and then got back on social. I'm like, oh, this dude has uh, killed the game 10 times over and uh, it makes me want to up my game as well. So uh, it's, it's, a prev- it's a privilege and a pleasure that I have on today, Mr. Quadrigas Driscoll. How are you doing today, sir? I'm well, Brother French. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So um, typically, as we have one here uh, for our guests, we give them the opportunity to just kind of introduce themselves just a little bit about you know where they're from. Uh, you know, maybe where they're living now and then kind of what they do. Uh, and we're going to kind of dig into a lot of that um, in, in regards to your background. And, and hopefully people will will realize why this episode is called from one connoisseur to another. So uh, tell us about yourself. Where are you from, man? You know, brother, I'm, I'm just a poor southern boy from, from East Point, Georgia, uh, <laughs> which I still actually live in East Point, Georgia. That's awesome. Uh, but I also live in um, Washington D.C. area as well, so I'm I'm back and forth. Mm. Uh, in fact, I'll be I'll be back there next week. So nice. Um, yeah. So I mean, that's that's it, right? I think we're all just try, trying to make it in this this journey we call life. Uh, and uh, good to be with you, man. <laughs> all right. So, um, like, I'm trying to be. No, no, no. Here, don't, right? don't, don't, don't be <laughs> humble. The, the, the whole purpose of uh, all things fine and gentry is for folks to be able to, uh, to, to share with the world who they are and what's going on from there. So I want to start first kind of with your name, right? It's, it's a very unique name. And this hmm. is coming from a guy whose name is French. And there's not too many people where I'm like, yeah, I know what it was like to grow up with a unique name and being able to, what I say, grow into that name. And so, uh, is that a family name? Kind of where did it come from? If you know the history and what was it like kind of uh, having that name and kind of living up to kind of the, the prestige that it even uh, 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 yeah, kind of lends itself to. Right. So, you know, as you mentioned, my name is Quadricus and um, it's 10 letters total. <laughs> uh, growing up, 
I did not like my name, mm-hmm. quite frankly, because I thought it was made up and I thought it was ghetto. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't, and this is a true story, it was not until my sophomore geometry teacher, Miss mm. Elliot, very oddly shaped woman, she was calling the role and she said, Quadricus, and she paused, she said, oh, do you know what your name means? Mm. I said, I, I don't. Right. And she said, oh, your name is Greek oh. in Latin. It means four. And I was, French, I can't tell you how excited I was. <laughs> when my 15-year-old self discovered what my name is. Mm. Uh, because, again, I think growing up in my, in my uh, you know, grammar years, I just thought my mother made it up. Mm. And so um, my, she, I think she saw it somewhere. My mother didn't know Greek or, or Latin, for that matter. I think she saw it somewhere, liked it, and here we are, right? Yeah. But it, it wasn't until um, wasn't until sophomore year geometry that I discovered that I, my name actually had a meaning. Nice. Now the really interesting thing about my name, right, is, <clears throat> and I'm also sort of into the whole spiritual metaphysical realm, mm-hmm. and so when you look at Everybody has a, a number, okay. uh, assigned a number at birth, right? No different than we all are assigned certain zodiac signs at birth, right? And, you know, I believe, of course, that it is all on purpose and it's all very intentional. Right. Uh, which is why when you look at astrology, depending on how deep one goes into it, there are certain characteristics that are ascribed with one's birth. Right. No different than there are certain characteristics that are ascribed with one's number, depending, of course, when they're born and their formulas to determine uh, one's number and one's sign, okay. essentially, right? And that's a very high-level overview. Well, the really interesting sort of cosmological thing that that I, which is why I love my name, is Quadricus means four. Right. Given the day, the year, and the month I was born, my my actual number is four. Wow. Right. And then when you look at the characteristics of the number four, it kingly aligns and matches up with the characteristics of my sun astrological sign, which is Aries. That's awesome. So somewhere in the universe, God, my mom knew (laughs) what they were doing when they named me Um, because it it all sort of aligns. The same characteristics of four is associated with the same characteristics of an Aries and an Aries male particularly. Um, so I, I grew to, to love my name, uh, and particularly when we were both at Morehouse. Yeah. But I, I also remember Miss um, Blackburn, I, I remember this conversation. As I was about to graduate, as we were about to graduate, she, she recommended to me that perhaps I use Q, I shortened my name, Q, Q Bernard Driscoll, right? Uh, because she did not want me to be discriminated against. Wow. And I was uh, thinking about graduate school and potentially job to, you know, put Hugh Bernard Bristol on my resume. And I was like, hell no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> my name is Quadrica. Uh, and I don't know if my name has, has led to levels of discrimination. I, I don't know that, right? But um, what I can tell you is that my, my full name is on my resume and has always been on my resume and I, I make sure that, I mean, most people, and, and I've also discovered, right. Most people who know languages mm-hmm. automatically know what my name ah, means. Got it. All right. It's like, it's like Condoleezza, right. Yeah. You, you don't know what Condoleezza means until you have um, at least studied. And so I, as I traveled 
the world, the country for that matter, and, and, and met people and scholars, and they're like, oh, Quadricos, you're doing this before. And they're like, oh, that makes sense. And so, um, yeah, I, I love it, uh, needless to say, but I, I don't think that I will name any of my um, unborn male children after me. I certainly don't want them to go through the headache oh. uh, that I've had to experience as a result. Come, come on. I, <clears throat> well, I'll put a pin in that. And if you hmm. decide to have children, we'll see how uh, how that comes around and we'll we'll see if you you still feel that way. So um, you, 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 you spoke about Morehouse. Um, and so you're you're, you know, like you said, a southern boy from East Point, Georgia. Um, and so proximity wise, I would say it's not surprising that you ended up at Morehouse. Right. Because literally it's it's around the corner. But um, mm-hmm. How did you end up at Morehouse? Why, why Morehouse versus, you know, anywhere else that you could have attended and been successful? How did you end up there? You know, I, I did not want to go to Morehouse. I think I said this uh, our, our senior year. Um, growing up in Atlanta, I was very familiar with Morehouse mm-hmm. and the entire Atlanta University Center. Uh, many of my family went to um, Morris Brown, particularly. Oh, wow. uh, and so I, I just I had no desire to go to Morehouse or any school within the Atlanta University Center. Uh, my uncle played in the marching band, the Marines, and yeah. he's very proud of that, right? So I would all, my brother and I, and my uncles and my father, they would always just take us over to the Atlanta University Center. So I wanted to go to um, UGA, right? The flagship school of the state. Um, but, you know, God always has a sense of humor. Yes. And I had very good mentors. Mm. And a lot of my mentors went to Spelman and Morehouse. Uh, it's amazing how sometimes our lives um, are really just critical appropriations and the embodiments of the traditions that shape us. That's good. Even though we're we're not realizing that that, that we're being molded in certain traditions. And and so growing up in Atlanta, um, you know, relatively middle class, one could say, um, surrounded by black people who were quite frankly doing well. You know, all of my... I can remember all of my teachers in high school, most of them, I shouldn't say all, most of them went to historically black colleges mm. and universities. Um, all of my mentors are, were either Spelman or Morehouse. That's interesting. And so it's, and then in addition to some of my family going to the Atlanta University Center. So it was, when I look back over my life, right, which I've done some reflection, it, it was kind of no surprise yeah. that I ended up at Morehouse, but originally I didn't want to go. I think the turning point for me, I did a summer program. It was, I shall never forget, it was the Super Scholar Excel program. Super <laughs> Scholar Excel program. At Xavier University in Louisiana, which is the HBCU, uh, it is the, the, the country's only Catholic, historically black college mm. university in, in uh, Louisiana. And there were a number of us, actually, that ended up going to Spelman and to Morehouse wow. uh, from that program. This is junior year yeah. uh, of high school. And that program brought together very talented black students from around the country. Um, and many of us actually ended up graduating, going off to historically black colleges and universities. Um, so I think that program was really transformative in my, in my experience because I think it was during that summer, that junior year of high school, being 504 boys when, when uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Master P yeah. and, and all of that was coming out. Uh, that in that program, I made the conscious decision that I would be attending Morehouse. Mm. And so I got back from that summer and then again, consciously realizing that a lot of my mentors were Spelman Knights, Spelman women, 
Morehouse men, and they sort of steered me in that direction. Needless to say, when it boiled down to two institutions, mm-hmm. it was Fisk University and, and Morehouse College. Interesting. So I, I made in, in that decision. I should say I made in that program. I made the decision that I would be attending a historically black college university right. because they inculcated us. Although, again, growing up in Atlanta, I knew a lot of black history uh, that was taught in my home. And that was taught by my teachers who went to HBCUs, right. but it, it was, just, I think at what was it, like 17, uh, it, you just, beca- I became more conscious. And so made the decision to go to Morehouse or to attend the HBCU from there. Needless to say, Fisk, I think offered me more money. Mm. Actually, Morehouse didn't offer me any money. So this is the real, <laughs> <laughs> this is how you know it was something beyond yourself that really influenced this decision. And I could not in good faith tell any student today to do what I did. Um, I applied to a lot of HBCUs, all in which I was accepted. I applied maybe to two or three PWIs, mm-hmm. uh, predominantly white institutions for the listeners who don't know that. And then was accepted into the PWIs. Dartmouth particularly, again, offered me money. Fisk offered me, and then I just said, I'm going to either Fisk or Morehouse, given the storied uh, narrative of both those institutions. <clears throat> And I remember my, one of my more, uh, excuse me, one of my mentors at that particular time, who was a Morehouse alum, saying, you know, this is a very good school, but you want to make sure that your institution is going to be around. <laughs> I never get he said that to me. He said, you want to make sure the institution is going to be around when you're older and be proud of it. And I was like, what you? he said, you know, Fisk just has had some trouble, right? And it wasn't like Morehouse had this very huge endowment, right, certainly not. Right. But it, it, but he, I, clearly, I remember sitting in the office of the Upper Bound Program mm. and <laughs> saying that. And um, I, I think just when it boiled down to it, although I received absolutely no money from the institution, thankfully I had enough money and scholarships mm-hmm. to get me through that first year, right? right? <laughs> first year at least, um, that I, I made the important decision to attend Morehouse. And, and quite frankly, even though I, I did leave with some student loans, um, it, it was one of the best decisions I've made in my adult life and certainly don't regret it. That's good. Um, so <clears throat> question, um, this is, this is good kind of digging into it. So I will say that, um, and I don't remember exactly when I met you, it was probably during NSO sometime or something like that, where we're all just kind of engaging and stuff like that. And I will say when I met you, right, you, you had this, uh, persona and kind of like, you know, I am, uh, Quadrigus Bernard Driscoll, and this is who I am, and uh, welcome to my world, and uh, thou shalt uh, bow and uh, be uh, appreciative of being in my presence. Um, being being slightly uh, exaggerative there, but <clears throat> you, I remember meeting you, and I was like, man, this guy, this embodies Morehouse, right? Uh, and this was like freshman year because of everything that we've learned and everything like that. Do you feel, or I guess, the question I, I guess really want to kind of go, how did you come into your personality and persona, right, of, of being who you are? And how do you think Morehouse helped to shape, helped to uh, nurture, grow that or or, you know, whichever way that, it, that it's kind of added to uh, who you are as a person? The very abbreviated, <laughs> uh, very abbreviated story in terms of how I came into my persona is I was loved. Mm. I was loved as a child. That's good. I was loved and I was affirmed. Um, my mother had a lot to do with that. And 
but my, my father, my, my grandparents, um, my uncles and my aunts, mm-hmm. they didn't, they never stifled me in any way That's good. Uh, in the sense that I was allowed to ask questions. Although some of them, you know, most of them were woefully inadequate <laughs> to answer any of the questions I had, but they allowed me to ask questions. They allowed me to explore. They sort of allowed me to do, you know, what it is, whatever it is I was doing. I was in programs and botillions at, you know, I think like starting sixth, sixth grade. Wow. Wow. Uh, and, and so, so, and again, it was just uh, an affirmation and a love that allowed me to, to really, quite frankly, know and be comfortable with who I am. That's good. Uh, even at a very young age, to, to very well be comfortable. And I think more, more academically, as I studied social ethics, right, I, I began to, to understand that it was those, those habits, those thoughts, those traditions of growing up in the South and particularly in Atlanta, yeah, right? Yeah. Which, which is in many ways the epitome of the petit bourgeois, right? Petit black bourgeois uh, of, of black middle class and, yep. and seeing these figures and remembering my father talking about voting for Michael Lomax at the time, who was chairman of the Fulton County Board of Commissioners and how he was a Morehouse man, right? Wow. And now, of course, he is the president of the United, uh, UNCF, United Negro College Fund. Remembering those conversations and, again, remembering my, my uh, Morehouse mentors and my Spellman mentors um, and those the wisdoms and the habits and the practices of those traditions, and, of course, the Black church is included in that, mm-hmm. um, all shaped me into that 18-year-old boy that I was yeah. when I arrived at Morehouse, right? Um, and then going to a, to a high school that was predominantly Black. And so, again, having those teachers very early on who went to HBCUs as well. Right. So all of that tradition shaped my thinking. It informed who I was and informed the level of confidence, I think, that I had. Perhaps it was arrogant. Yes, it was. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, it was confident, <laughs> confident Morehouse, man. That's all. <laughs> uh, but it informed all of that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I liken it to if, if segregation w- was allowed to happen in the way that it probably should have, mm-hmm. right? If you, if you take uh, Tulsa, yep. Black Wall Street, yep. take Auburn Avenue in Atlanta, perhaps Rosewood, and several other of those cities that would have flourished if it wasn't, of course, for white mob violence, right. what then would those cities have become? Interesting. Right? And so I, I, and this is not to romanticize segregation, but it is to say I grew up in a world that was black that was comfortably middle class um and, and that was affirming yeah in, in some real sense unlike a lot of our classmates who who and then everybody's experience of course in our traditions are different um who came from largely white environments being the only black in their class whereas in my ap class i was not yeah right um all of that shaped me again to that 18 year old self so everything that I learned prior to going to Morehouse, um, Morehouse reinfer- excuse me, reinforced yeah. the things that I learned at home. That's good. Right? That's good. Um, I mean, quite frankly, and I, and I, I say this now, I, you know, I used to be a Republican. I, mm-hmm. Right? Used, used to be <laughs> is the operative word here. Um, and and I, was, I was at that particular time a Republican because I remember my paternal grandfather talking to me 
about why he, during the era of like Eisenhower, mm-hmm. right? So this is back in the 50s and, and Kennedy and Nixon and why he chose to identify. And, and it, partly it was because of economic reasons, right? right? He, he instilled in me, you know, you have a mission, yes, to help your community, to help your family first uh, and to help your community and, and through economic means, right? The power of the dollar. Um, and, and that made sense to me, right? And so when I, and then I was always interested in politics because of my mother. And so when I was 16, I went on the website to both the Fulton County and the Democratic Republican Party. And based off the conversation I had with my paternal grandfather, I said, oh, we're Republicans, right? <laughs> right. And, and so I went to my, my, my parents were divorced. I went to my mom and I went to my dad and, and said, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a Republican. We're Republicans. And my father, I remember him saying, son, no, we're not. We're Democrats, right? But even then, at 16 years old, couldn't legally vote. Right. Um, sending a check, $30 check. That I probably got that I got from my parents to the Fulton County Republican Party, and again them affirming me mm. in this right. Oh, okay, our son wants to be a Republican. All right, cool, and they just went with it, That's right? Um, so it, it's it's those type of examples and stories that I grew up with that Morehouse, in, in many ways, I think reinforced, and, and, but then also just took it from a from a more local perspective and broaden those traditions that ultimately shape my character and my narrative and the man that I am. And, and certainly I would also say that you are and, and, and the case for many of our classmates. That, that's it's interesting, your story, right? Because <clears throat> I grew up in DC and um, graduated from a high school in Prince George's County and PG County is affectionately known as, you know, where a bunch of bougie black people live. Right. And so right. <laughs> being around all of that now, I will say that I believe it has evolved tremendously since I was there and the ones can say for better or for worse, but, um, but it was very interesting, right? Because you, like you said, being at exposure, being around all of this, um, you know, professional, uh, black people and then going down to Morehouse and being like, I would admit the first time I was down there, I was like, Oh, this is just like home. Right. <clears throat> like, Oh, okay. I get this. I know this game, but then being able to, I would say, uh, realize or, learn to appreciate the diversity of black people that I saw there, right? That, Oh, everyone is a PG County esque or, or PG County versus Southeast DC, right? This, this one large, you know, um, you know, standard deviation from each other and being able to see that, which again, helped to refine and define and say, Hey, I am, I'm not necessarily, I don't have to, um, fit said mold of, um, <clears throat> of a black person that there are many nuances of it and being more comfortable in the skin uh, that, that we were given and all that more, that HBCUs are, and then more specifically institutions like Morehouse that nurture and refine and affirm and tell you that you, not that you can, but you will, right. You will be this. Right. You will right. do that. You, and, and it is your destiny. It is what you have been placed on this earth to do to be successful and then to, to make something with it. And so that's interesting, kind of, kind of that piece in there. So <clears throat> as you've matured through there, you kind of spoke about, you know, your, your interest in politics and everything like that. What did you major in at Morehouse? And then, uh, you know, cause you could have done a bunch of things, right? How did you choose that major and how did you know this is the, the path that you wanted to go? And then we'll kind of navigate how that kind of ties into what you do now. Go ahead. All right. Well, I mean, you've heard me speak a lot about my, family and my, and my mother particularly. So uh, my mom was very involved in the community. Mm-hmm. And I think around eighth grade, she was a campaign treasurer in, 
and co-campaign manager for, you know, it's amazing how our memories work. I still remember the woman's name. She was a campaign treasurer and, and co-campaign manager for Regina Davis. Mm. She, she was running, Regina Davis was running for a state representative seat in the General Assembly of Georgia against a man who had been there forever and quite frankly was there long after we graduated more out. <laughs> uh, I was that kid. I was that cute kid passing out mm. leaflets. And that sparked my interest because I think I knew then that my mother was doing something to help the community yeah. or, or trying to get this woman elected to help the community. And, and quite frankly, I think that, that, again, being around that environment sparked my interest, quite frankly, in politics. Um, and so when, you know, high school came, I, I did the whole student government things, vice president of the student body and all of that, same at Morehouse. Uh, so when I got to Morehouse, it, for me, it was just no, it, it was just automatic that I would major in political science. That's good. Uh, which is what I did. Uh, I, I majored in political science, um, went on to get a graduate degree in it. <laughs> to a degree in it. Um, and um, again, it was, it was the, the church, another institution that shaped my character and being, um, although I, I have many, many problems and challenges with the church, <laughs> church universally speaking. Uh, there, but wait, 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 I'll, I'll pause here. When this episode airs, it will be after an episode called "Race and Religion." Uh, so ah. I would love for you to 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 listen to that, you, and then when we when we when I get you back on, uh, we'll love to kind of hear your thoughts about where that well, goes. Well, please, yes, please send it to me because I don't know if you know, but that's exactly what I teach. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> so uh, religion and politics were, was just always of interest to me, both from a practical as well as from an academic uh, perspective. Mm. And, and, I, and I, I studied political science more formally at Morehouse's. That was my major. Took up a minor in leadership studies because, hey, of course you study politics to be a leader, right? Right. And then that was the first time they, this college was introducing a minor in leadership yeah. studies. And so I was one of the first cohorts to get that minor. But uh, another formative academic experience at Morehouse was my time as chapel, yep. uh, the Martin Luther King Jr. International Chapel. Um, a founding dean who's still there uh, in his 41st year, um, the dean Lawrence Edward Carter Sr., who really just, I don't know what dean did, but he, uh, he took us to a different place yes. uh, from a spiritual, metaphysical uh, level mm-hmm. uh, in, in many respects that just broaden our, our minds and our, our souls uh, to understanding religion and spirituality on a very, very deeper level. That's good. And, um, and, and so it, it allowed me to be comfortable in my angst with the church oh, that's good. and yet still serve a church, right? Yep. Uh, and to, to wrestle with those questions of meaning and to wrestle with those questions of, of suffering and living yet in the poly, the polis, excuse me, the city state. Um, and so I, I went on to study social ethics after Morehouse, um, studying religion and politics and how they play out in the American political landscape, mm-hmm. knowing, of course, a large number of people in the world are religious. Yeah. Few people, however, actually understand religion. That's good. That's good. No, no different than. We all live in, you know, as the polis, the Greek city-state, uh, but few people, although we all have opinions about it, 
few people understand politics. Yeah. Uh, and so when you take those two institutions, both religion and, and politics, that in many respects governs the lives of most people in the world. That's good. And, and have, quite frankly, since the dawn of age. I mean, theology is the oldest academic tradition, right? Right. Uh, so when you take those two entities, it, it, my mind then and still now made sense as to why I sort of studied that. Um, so yeah, all of us, all of the euphoric things that Morehouse taught us of improving our society and improving our community, but also how that plays out practically right. um, and what that means for people as we try to live life as we try to have meaning in the life that we live, uh, as we try to find some level of joy or happiness in this society, while yet obtaining whatever goals we set for ourselves. That's good. Uh, so that, that's all what I, I studied and then again went on to study at the graduate level, and which led me to the things that I, I do now. Which is, all right, this is great. It's a perfect segue. <clears throat> because like you have like 25 jobs. Um, uh, but I mean, <clears throat> primarily, uh, well, let's, just kind of share that the main three, uh, you're, you're a professor, right? You, um, you're a, a, a pastor as well as, you know, I would say you're a, a lobbyist extraordinaire. Um, but, um, kind of just briefly kind of what are the, the spheres that you're kind of engaging in right now, as far as what you do professionally, and then kind of want to dig into, um, your, your connoisseurisms. Right. I mean, you, you've, you've articulated. I, I, I mean, those are the three main things that I get paid to do. Uh, I, I do. I'm a columnist as well. Uh, some would say uh, political analyst. Uh, but those are the, the three main, main professions to which I am known for. And, and I think those three different buckets lead me to, to do other things on the side, of course, to, to make money. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I love politics. I, I fundamentally love it, and 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 I, and I tell students this as I as I speak with them often is that the very thing that I wanted to do as a child, um, I'm doing. That's good. Right. That's good. Uh, now God knows I could use more money, <laughs> uh, but you know, but I I remember wanting to be I wanted to work in politics. Okay. Right. When I was younger, uh, and. I'm doing that now, right? Um, wanting to be a professor, yeah. actually, when I was younger. That's good. And, and I'm doing that, right? So, so that is the real beauty in, in many respects. And again, direct correlation there between, between my family and between Morehouse particularly. Um, and, and so, yes, I, I do all of those things, even with uh, the, the angst I have towards the church, uh, <laughs> I, I wrote in an article in an academic journal that I lost my religion when I became pastor of a church. That's good. Uh, which that's good. Though. I, that's good though. Go ahead. Um, becoming a pastor was, was never, however, a professional goal of mine, mm. never a professional goal of mine. Uh, in fact, I, I did. That's not what I wanted to become. But again, as I said earlier, God has a sense of humor. He does. Right? And, and when you look back at, the critical appropriation and the embodiment of the traditions that shaped our, our character and our meaning and meanings of a people, right? Um, and as I look back over my life specifically, it is no coincidence um, in some respects that I ended up going into somebody's pulpit um, 
and I think it, it's incumbent upon us, and, and her, hopefully we have done this individually during, the, during this COVID pandemic ride, is um, having that alone time yeah. to, to think critically and deeply about our life, where we were and where, where we are, and certainly where we're going now, and, and making some strategic steps to position us individually uh, where we certainly want to be. And I know I've done a lot of reflection and what I've discovered, of course, is that a lot of people really just don't like themselves. Right. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> um, I mean, it's or, right. Or they don't like their partners or who they're with, who are with, right. Because they're now forced to reckon with some of those things that quite frankly have distracted us mm. so much. Uh, so needless to say, I'll stop right there, no, but yes, those are the three things that, that I do. Um, for my, my lot, and I often lead with the fact that I'm a lobbyist um, because that is my, I'm, I love, <laughs> I was going to say that is my bread and butter. Um, <laughs> I know I am a lobbyist, uh, but I, I lobby, I'm a healthcare lobbyist. Yeah. So I am in healthcare policy. Um, so a lot of my work has been spent lobbying on behalf of pharmaceutical companies, uh, lobbying on behalf of patients, right. and lobbying on behalf of physicians. That's good. Um, really, the, the full scope of, of healthcare. Um, and that means that I directly talk to members of Congress mm-hmm. or their staff about issues that are affecting the provider, the patient, and the drug development space. Uh, so in some ways, when, when we think of even, again, this global pandemic of COVID-19 and how it's killing millions of people around the world, and obviously the 400,000 plus people, l- large number of that being black and brown folk. Right. I have been having conversations about what that means and what that looks like and, and ensuring, you know, that at least the first two COVID packages got over the finish line. And I, I, there were me among, you know, hundreds of lobbyists right. who were sort of arguing for that bill uh, or that particular legislation to be passed. Um, so, you know, I, I have, I think, out of all the things I've lobbied for, one bill has become law, signed by President Obama. Nice. And another bill, last Congress, was actually passed, but not signed into law. So I would say those are sort of my, my legislative accomplishments, again, all to help people, um, certain subpopulations. And then as, a, as an academic, I teach at the George Washington University. Yep. Uh, we're um, in, in the D.C. area where I lecture on politics, religion, and, and race, which is interesting because I don't know how, well, I do know how uh, I started teaching on race. That's good. <laughs> but I mean, it's, <clears throat> well, you, you, you spoke about that intersection, right, of how all of this, it comes together, right? Social justice, social um, issues, people are governed by religion, how the relationship between race and religion has become so... Um, touchy and I even become, it's always been that way for, for a while. And then you look on the politics side of people who have leveraged religion and to enable whatever policies or politics that they want to, to, to push. Right. Or even you use religion as a uh, base for manifest destiny or colonialism and all these things, it all comes together. Right. And so right, right. to, to that point of saying it, it makes sense that this is a, a nexus uh, kind of discussion point for people to kind of take a step back and look deeper into it. And so um, I think that's, that's pretty cool. So I, I want to pivot here because um, in regards to, to you being a connoisseur 
um, all things fine and gentry has four facets facets if you look at the the logo right so my logo has four facets it's travel uh, libations uh, reading and music uh, you know uh, reading and and music intake right so again travel libations reading and then music audio intake as far as a part of a well-rounded life um, of, of being a connoisseur and so I want to kind of ask kind of call it a lightning round your questions or thoughts on these different items so I want to first start with travel you, you travel extensively. Before we got on, you were I've been, you know, everyone knows that most of my remote interviews are done via Zoom uh, for being able to commu- communicate and connect with folks. And so I asked him because uh, he has a, um, you know, essentially a wonderful backdrop. And I'm like, you know, looks like it's something from uh, coming to America. So uh, <laughs> so you travel extensively. And I know that you recently just came back from Rwanda. Uh, how how was that going to Rwanda and where has been your favorite place to travel and your next place to go? Right. Well, my, you know, my favorite place by far is Rwanda, actually. Interesting. Okay. Uh, my, my brother, uh, who's also a Morehouse alum, lives there. Oh. Uh, yes. So that was the impetus for me to go. Actually, I was visiting my brother, quite frankly. Nice. Uh, but, but he ended up there because after Morehouse, he did the Peace Corps, the United States Peace Corps. Yep. And uh, he, of course, like most, wanted to go to the Caribbean or Eastern Europe, but they sent him to Rwanda. And uh, he actually ended up falling in love with the country and with the people. And I can certainly see and attest why. That's nice. Um, So I went, and at that particular time, I had not seen my my brother in almost, it it would have been nearly three years. So I just said, I'm going to to go COVID be damned. (laughs) And I did. Uh, But So let me tell you about Rwanda and, and why I love it and even how safe it is and how Rwanda, when you look at all the countries in the world, is number wow. six. Number six, the small Central East African country is number six in the world in terms of effectively dealing with COVID-19. Interesting. Wow. <laughs> yes. So Rwanda to me is both tragically and beautifully human. Interesting. And it's a country, I think, as we all know, per the movie Hotel Rwanda, mm-hmm. we've all seen it. Uh, that was ravaged and plagued, regrettably, uh, by the 1994 genocide that took place, right? Uh, but but the leadership of uh, the small East and Central African country, where 80% of its parliament are women, mm. right? And I think that obviously says something, wow. <laughs> when 80% of the parliament are women, all right, more than any other country in the world, um, has outlined really an aggressive long-term plan uh, that continues to improve the country's human and economic, rural and even urban development. That's interesting. So, when you look at countries in Africa, Rwanda is in many respects like the crown jewel. That's good. Um, they have fought corruption and, and they have done it through reconciliation mm. and, and forgiveness. Wow. Right, which is, I think, also something that the United States and other countries can actually use. Right. <laughs> Because again, we, we know per the movie, if we've seen it, mm-hmm. we know what happened, right? You you had two tribes, which were, I would note, were manufactured, mm. okay? Hutus and Tutsis don't exist. Of course, we all know what happened in the belt, in uh, the great conference of 1885, I want to say, right? When Europe yes. decided that they were going to go into Africa and colonize. Well, what you know is that they were the Bantu people, right? Mm-hmm. And Bantu people are largely East African. So there was so this concept of Tutsi and Hutu was manufactured by the Belgians. Wow! Right. 
so that's that's another conversation. So anyway, um, that's colonial powers, of course, uh, white supremacy and all of that. Uh, but because of colonialism, there are still those obviously that, that subscri- subscribe to those notions. Mm-hmm. But Rwanda has has wonderfully undergone a forgiveness and reconciliation countrywide where obviously there there isn't i mean there's still conflict right no no country yeah. is a utopia or right, country right. is perfect uh but they have gone through this transformation that again i think is a model certainly for the united states in terms of our you know precarious history with race in this country um but they have rebranded themselves as a tourist destination um as a as a vital force for for its services it is rated number one in terms of doing best practices in mm. businesses that's good in africa uh it is ranked uh among the world bank again as easy business practice uh the the international congress and, and convention association declared rwanda one of the most popular african destinations really uh, so yes yes so it, it truly is the country itself truly is a rags to riches story but it is also the story of human reconciliation, forgiveness, democracy, cleanliness, and a willingness to embrace change. That's good. Uh, for all those reasons, I love the country. Sounds, sounds, um, sounds like you're about to move there when, you know, right, the United I, I, States. I, 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 yeah. Well, well I, I, my brother and I are, are looking at doing some development in Africa. Nice. Uh, in so uh, I'm not moving there. Let me say, let me say that because <laughs> quite frankly, it's too far. Uh, but my brother, my brother lives there and, and will live there in the foreseeable future. Uh, so I will always have, if need be, a second home on the continent. That's good. Yeah. That's good. All right. So libations. Right. So you had a post in Rwanda. You were uh, trying some Rwandan coffee. And one of the statements that you said in there is, look, uh, I only drink whiskey wine or water and you said I'll whiskey try wine tea water <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. so uh what that was just awesome i was like that's that's right that's on one point all right uh what, what's your favorites of each right if you had a favorite whiskey your favorite wine your favorite water uh which, which would it be are those categories mm, that's that's a hard question so I, i'll give you a general category i start with whiskey because that's easier I, I absolutely love, love, love Indian whiskey. Really? Yes. Love it. Amarut. Got to try it. I'm, I've, never, <laughs> Amarut, I've never even known about Am- Indian whiskey. Okay. Amarut whiskey. It's A-M-R-U-T. I was telling one of our other classmates about this, uh, who is also a whiskey connoisseur. Uh, but it is a, it's a brand of Indian single malt whiskey. Wow. Um, it's the, the sort of large, it's a, I think it's the second largest or the largest um, single malt whiskey in the country. I've never been to India, okay. uh, but I do have, I do want to go, but uh, um, Amaru is absolutely my, my favorite whiskey. Nice. Um, second would be Japanese whiskey. Um, okay. Love Japanese whiskey. It, so Amaru so is, and when you think of Indian food and all of the spices yeah, that are associated yeah. with Indian food, right? Think of the whiskey or the spices in, in liquid form. Interesting. Wow. So that's, so that flavor profile is just rich, right? It is, it is rich. It is bold. It's like a party in your mouth and you're, and you are being invited to, I mean, this, this whiskey, and this is only for true whiskey drinkers. Like it's, it's smooth. It's flavorful. It's spicy. It's great. 
And so I would put on that category, secondly, Japanese whiskey, I think, is, is also bold. I think Japanese whiskey is bolder than Indian whiskey. Okay. Right. Um, smoother, certainly not as spicy as Amarut, but good. Okay. So we're talking about um, uh, Habiki, uh, uh, and I always mispronounce, so forgive me, it's uh, Yamakizi whiskey, okay. uh, Tuki whiskey, I, I love it all. Uh, of course, as you know, the older it is, yep. the more aged it is, the more expensive, <laughs> the better it also is. Uh, I, when I went to Japan, and Japan's an expensive country. Yes. Let's, let's put that out. Japan's an expensive country. I think I spent, shamefully, shamefully spent $400 on one single malt <laughs> of uh, Yamakazi whiskey. Wow. Um, I mean, the, the, those are like some of the small pleasures and joys of life. I would never do that here in the States. <laughs> uh, well, no, I take that back. because I. But anyway, yeah, so. Um, all right, all right, so that, that's your whiskey. Oh, yeah. So that's, that's the whiskey. Um, wine. Uh, you know, I, I, I generally enjoy wine from Oregon. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, Wilhelmina, that vineyard, it's just something about Oregon wine that I, that I love. Uh, 2014 was when I first went, or no, it must have been 2012. Actually, it was 2012. I enjoy hiking. Yeah. I, I'm an outdoor enthusiast, so I'm a hiking enthusiast, and I've been hiking across the country and the world. And so I went out to Oregon in 12. Um, because I wanted to go hiking, but okay. I knew there were some excellent vineyards out there as well, right? And I did a whole West Coast tour from because I went down from Oregon uh, to to Napa. Yep. Um, and I and I can't I cannot particularly and I've I've done some not just wine tasting but taking some classes on wine tastings and the tongue and the notes and the palates, but it is something about Oregon wine, particularly the vineyard Wilhelmina, that I enjoy. Um, it is not terribly bold. It's it's smooth. Mm. It's fruit, fruity, so to speak. It's just good. That's good. Um, yeah. So, so is, is it a is it a red? I I, mean, I assume it's. A, it, I, I only drink red, okay. uh, so I, I don't particularly like. Uh, <laughs> I don't particularly like white. I will drink white. Not I'm not a fan of, but it is all red. So their Pinot Noirs. I love Pinot. Are great. Yeah. Yeah, Pinot Noirs are great. Uh, the cabs are great. I will also, I've taken two Australian um, cabs as of late. Interesting. Um, they tend to be to be bold um, as well and, and great. Uh, cabs typically tend to be bolder uh, than a Pinot Noir. Pinot yeah. Noir yeah. typically quite right. Uh, you know, but the best wine, and maybe this was my 20, 21-year-old self, was when I went to, to France, and I went in some cafe and just had the house wine. And it was, <laughs> it and was the best wine. And again, perhaps I was 20 and uh, first time in, in Paris. No, no, and, no. And, I, I, I don't think so, though, right? Because, like, when you go to a place that um, excellence in that sphere is, uh, that, that's just what they do. I think you just experience things differently, right? So the first time I was in, I want to say Nebraska, uh, like in the middle of the state, like Broken Bow or something like that, where 
I mean, for those that know Nebraska, it is half corn, half cattle. And um, I went to a random, you know, mom and pop diner and they had like, you know, ribeye steak. It was like $10, you know, but it was like an 18 ounce or something like that. And I'm like, you know, I'm again, 21 or something. And um, I'm like, sure, I have that. And it was the best steak I have ever had. You know what I mean? And it's because of essentially this. You know, this is what they do, right? This is they are they are connoisseurs in this realm, um, and so it probably I wouldn't be surprised if that French wine wasn't the best that that uh, that you had there. All right, reading. So you you made a post uh, before. Um, uh, it was about a book. You you had kind of said, "Well, everyone is reading about the past." And you had Obama's book up there, uh, "Promised Land." You said, "I'm focusing on the future, reading the future." And you had Kamala Harris's book. Um, so. How was that, and what's on your coffee table now? Well, actually, I didn't get a chance to read oh. uh, Vice President Harris's uh, book. It is still on my shelf, okay. uh, and I will get to it soon. But I am partic- participating in this book club per my, my church, um, and it's called White Tears, Brown Scars, Ooh. How White Feminism Betrays Women of Color by Ruby Ahmad. Uh, so... This is currently, I'm currently reading this. Wow, um, that's deep. Yes, it, it's, it's not light reading, uh, to say the least. <laughs> uh, but essentially, it, it talks about, which I think some of us have experienced, um, how white tears, mm-hmm. white, when a white woman cries, and how a white woman or white women are the subordinate subjects to the white male in this larger game of supremacy mm. and how they weaponized and have weaponized their tears against black and brown women wow. uh, and men or black people and, and how they continue to do that. Most of them unconscious mm. right, to how their tears are weaponized, uh, but yet a form of oppression nonetheless. So, uh, Ahmad, who again is the author here, she what I what I appreciate about the book is that she looks at women from and I and I say the diaspora certainly very liberally and broadly, right? Because she looks at women of color from the Aborigines women in Australia. Yep. She looks at Arab women. She looks at Black women, and and certain and Latina women, mm-hmm. and. She, she dissects in a very real way, in a very practical way that's not overly academic, but yet still academic, of how Latinas can get away because of their, the hue of their skin, right? Interesting. With, with some aspects of cultural appropriation that an Aborigines woman or a Black woman cannot, right? So in the book, she talks about, uh, who is this young lady out there? Gomez is her name. Selena Gomez. <laughs> There you go. How Selena Gomez can mm. flirt in this world of being vivacious and sexy and yet it being not offensive and go back to retreating because of the hue of her skin, although wow. she's Latina. Wow. Versus if a black woman does that, she is then Jezebel, right? Yeah, she's then hypersex. Yeah. Right, right. So she, she, anyway, she does, she goes into that book. I appreciate it. It's again, it's academic, but it's not overly academic. It's certainly not a white, a light read, excuse me, 
It's white tears, brown scars, how feminism betrays women of color. And then what came in yesterday is in memory of our queen, of oh, course, Cicely uh, Titan, just as I am. So I will be reading, I'll be finishing uh, White Tears, Brown Scars and, and reading Cicely Tyson's Just As I Am. And then I think I'll get to Senator Harris's book. Awesome. <laughs> All right. That and uh, <clears throat> last thing, audio intake. What's on your playlist? What are you listening to these days? If you have one song that you're, you're, you're playing, what is that? Um, <clears throat> most recently, I have discovered this group. Um, so I'm late to the game, Tank and the, and the Bargus. I have not heard of them. Well, look them up. Tank and uh, the Bargus or okay. the Bagus. I've, list, I've been listening to that as of late. That has been on my playlist. Interesting. Uh, are they yeah. R&B? Is it pop? What is it? You know, they are, they are a group from um, New Orleans, okay. Louisiana. Uh, it's a band. They, they won the... 2017 um, NPR Tiny, oh, Tiny Desk. Desk. Got yes. it. And I like Tiny Desk. Oh, yeah, I don't definitely. always, but right, Tiny Desk, NPR Tiny Desk. And so I was just flipping through YouTube one day in this, in this quarantine process and um, found Tank and the Bargain. And so I've been listening to them and um, it's, it's hard to describe their style of music. It's, it's, it's a combination of funk, it's soul, it's hip-hop, it's spoken word. Mm. It's, it's a lot of different. It's rock. It, so it's, it's just great music, right. quite frankly. All right. Uh, well, we'll, so we'll check we'll it out. Be, we'll yeah. be checking that out. There, there, I do yeah. have a, a recurring um, uh, episode or um, you know, session on here called Lyrics and Libations. And so... Uh, probably will drink some of this Indian whiskey while we listen to Tank ah. in the Bagus and, and kind of go from there. All right, last piece here. You said um, you're a de facto ambassador of all things fine and gentry, right? Again, if, I, if someone were to say, hey, uh, you have a bunch of money, you put together a uh, organization called All Things Fine and Gentry, and you put together your board of directors, et cetera, you're, you're, you, you would be on there. Um, so what's one way that you feel that you yourself live a fine and gentry life. Like if you think about it, as far as everything that you've done, everything that you're doing, if someone were to say, hey, uh, you know, what's my characteristic of a fine and gentry life or something that you would say, hey, uh, this is how I, I live out being, living a fine and gentry life, what would that be? Interesting question. <laughs> I, I try to be authentic to who I am. Good. I think that's, that's the best way to live a of all things fine and gentry, right? I, I don't try to fit in any sort of modes, models, motifs. That's good. Or ideas that people think that I should. I like what I like. I enjoy what I enjoy. And if you don't, well, the hell with you and God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> and here's so the, I, there's I, the bow. <laughs> uh, but I think that's the best way is to try to live your best authentic life. That's good. Um, Right. That's good. And, and whatever you like, you like and, and appreciate. Um, you know, I, I've long realized my mother mentioned this to me. She said, you know, growing up, one of the things she said to me or repeatedly said to me, said, boy, you have to be rich because you're not going to do shit. <laughs> uh, and, and your taste is rather expensive. So my taste was expensive as a child, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and certainly it is even more expensive as an adult, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> um, but 
that's not to say that you have to have expensive taste in order for all things to be fine and gentry. That's good. Uh, if, if you like going to Trader Joe's and just buying their wine, like that's what you like yeah. and, and take ownership of that. Right. That's good. Uh, you don't have to go out and, and spend $400 on a, a single shot of malt Japanese whiskey in order to for all things to be fine and gentry. So whatever you like and appreciate, just take ownership and be proud and be proud, excuse me, of that. That's good. Hey, man, I appreciate you taking the time today. This was an awesome conversation. I learned so much about you and your mindset, and I hope a lot of people learned as well. Just uh, some thoughts and things along that line. So thank you for, for joining the podcast today, sir. Anytime, French. Right. I, I hope, brother, that we could uh, do this again. Oh, oh, we will. We, we have a we have race and politics. I got Q-Ticks with, with Quadrigas, with all these types of things, especially in this um in this new administration and reflection of the old. So um, again, thank you. And for each and every one of you all that, that, uh, that tuned in and listen, thank you all for tuning in. We'd love for you all to uh, rate, uh, review, um, like, share, let us know your thoughts because it helps us to be better at what we do and be able to provide you all with the content that helps you live yourself a fine and gentry life. So I will say this. Remember that whatever it is that you're doing in life, whatever it is that you're doing in life, remember to be a connoisseur of it. Right. And live a life. That's all things fine and gentry. Thank you guys for listening. And we will see you after a while.